Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast exploring the latest decks, trends, and strategy in modern. My name is Stanislav, here in Chicago, Illinois, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, is Shane Beeps. What's up, Stan? How you doing, man? Doing great, buddy. Good to hear from you. Also in Chicago, but a little bit north of me, is uh, our big daddy of magic, the one and only Dave Harburger. Hey. so Happy New Year's to everybody. To you and yours and listeners and everybody. Thanks. And a Feliz Navidad to you as well. And last but not least, certainly not the shortest, maybe even the tallest, Interesting. on Chicago's like north side, it's Zach Coolhan. Coolhan, great to be here. Great to be here tonight. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Every time. Hey guys, it's great to be recording with you again. I- I've gotten some good feedback about the first couple episodes. Hopefully you have too. Yeah, it seems like people love it and we're a national sensation and we're just going to take over the the multiverse from here, from our seats. We're the Coca-Cola podcasts. Everyone loves us. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe we became an international sensation and Obama tweeted about us. And uh, Hold on, we got Barry? We got Barry tweeting us? Yeah, we Amazing. were in his top five favorite podcasts of 2018. Yeah, we right next to right under us. the radar. <laughs> right. Yeah. right next to Serial Chapter 3 or whatever. That's right. <laughs> All right, guys, let's hop right into our first and uh, quick topic, the New Year's Eve MTGO Modern Finals. Did you guys understand what this was at all? No. Like, is, did, <laughs> I think people had to qualify for it. Like, I don't really get it. It's just bizarre that so much of this, like the modern tournament scene is like hidden behind this veil of like secrecy and like intentional obscurification like i feel like they go out of their way to make these things not available to us my educated guess is that in the deep state (laughs) isn't it just uh you qualify via mocks by getting points through doing mocks challenges i mean you could literally say anything stan and i could neither agree nor disagree with what you state so I, I Googled a ton today trying to figure out what this tournament was. I mean, we, we should talk really quickly. So this this is us looking at a kind of large field tournament on Magic Online. It looks to me like it's pretty much the same thing as a modern challenge. And in fact, some of the other tournaments that were run that day, like Legacy and Vintage, had challenges. They didn't have finals. So I don't really know if there's a reason that this tournament is called the finals. But we felt like it was a good tournament to talk about. And uh, since it felt so definitive these are the finals yes yeah and uh, the final yeah, stand run us on the decks right so uh i mean i'll just focus in the top eight because i think it's pretty interesting that uh all but one of those decks is red six out of the seven is blue red including grixis death shadow uh the winner was blue red arclight second place was burn which I think Kanda came out of nowhere. Third place was GDS. Fourth place, Blue Red Control, which was essentially the Blue Moon shell, but with relics instead of Blue Moon. And the winner of, uh, or the player of that deck is this MG, MTGO player named Rooney56, whom I, I, I don't know their identity, but uh, they put up a lot of results with 
different blue red decks and i kind of feel like this person is my spirit animal um fifth place was the blue red wizards deck somehow somehow <laughs> i know right sixth place was another blue red arclight phoenix deck seventh place was hardened scales and eighth place was storm so mtgo finals was all about variations on blue red it appears yeah exactly wow there's blue in almost all those decks yeah and then we i mean i looked at the ninth through 16th as well and that you know we have kci which is you know hard and good to play on magic online um there's another grixis death shadow there's another kci there's good old rock which rock seems to always show up more on magic online events than it does in real life um, another Storm, another KCI, and then another Hardened Scales, and another uh, Blue Red Phoenix deck. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of really interactive decks. Really looking to you know do stuff with their opponent, have some fun. That's sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well delivered. <laughs> to me, apart from uh, the Blue Red Control deck, which ran Relic of progenitus instead of blood moon um i didn't really see anything else that was especially spicy uh, if, if you can even call that spice relics over moon i don't know if you guys felt differently i wouldn't know I what's mean, spice in that deck honestly it seems to me that that took out one of the main win conditions that that deck sort of has but maybe it's just like we were talking about last week, it just maybe you don't need Blood Moon main deck anymore. Maybe just because there's better ways to attack people, like by attacking the graveyard in the main deck. It was yeah. fascinating that there wasn't any Blood Moons in the in that 75 at all. Right. For a deck that used to be called Blue Moon. Sure, exactly. I, I play Blood Moon and Scred, obviously. And I do feel like lately it is not as powerful as it once was. There are definitely still plenty of decks, even people like Control, where if you can get it down before they have the basic they need it wins the game but i feel like with humans and spirits and a lot of other decks that can do goofy stuff and play cards without paying mana cost it's not quite as good as it once was and things like um hollow one is red does not really care that much and death shadow really only needs two lands and if they're smart they can grab one of their basics right away so i feel like it's still good and it can still get people out of nowhere but i feel like its power is declining in recent months yeah, I mean, I've gotten a lot more dodgy playing against Blood Moon decks these days just because I, I've i gotten a lot more aggressive with fetching basics no matter what matchup I'm in in the game one just to make sure I don't get kind of blindsided by someone attacking my mana base sure. like that. So maybe that's just kind of what's happening in general. Plus, like you said, there's a lot of decks that just don't care. I will mention that in 27th place was that blue moon deck Um, so (laughs) it still put up some results but i think also what we might be seeing is kind of a testament to the meta of this tournament and i mean if you knew that arc lights were going to be everywhere you're probably better off running phoenix or i'm sorry running the relic and main deck graveyard hate than you know blood moon which is bad against red decks i just want to do a quick shout out to this 25th place deck it's just a joy of of tons of random one ofs, it's. I mean, it's it's doing. It's trying to do some kind of retreat to Coral Helm, Knight of the Brother Quarry combo, but along the way is is playing so many crazy crazy one ofs without any way to t- tutor them up. No, it tell. does have a way to tutor them up though. It has four fauna, fauna shaman. Oh, so it's doing the fauna shaman game. Okay, there yeah. we go. This this is a this is a dope deck. I love it. 
Yeah, this so is the, crazy. The, kind of the reason that I wanted to talk about this tournament, though, was to just get a, get a look at, given the discussion that we had last week about the way that the metagame was shaping up in 2018, to see this kind of final tournament, like literally the last tournament that happened in 2018. And the met, the field just looks like it's all is it Phoenix, <laughs> and somehow a whole bu- all is it Phoenix and a whole bunch of blue red decks, and then also somehow a bunch of Grixis Death Shadow, and then a bunch of KCI. Now the KCI didn't do well, but there was there was stuff going on in the you know outside of the top eight, so they definitely still placed. But there's like seven Grixis Death Shadow decks in the top thirty two, and I was really surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, I've been hearing both uh, buzz about Grixis Death Shadow being back on the map and also Burn is, there's a SCG article where, you know, they do the, what would you play at the next modern modern tournament? And a couple of them, including, I believe Ari Lax was like, yeah, just take Burn. It doesn't get hit, doesn't get hit by uh, Graveyard Hate. You can hit their Graveyard with Rest in Peace in your sideboard. Uh, Eidolon of the Great Revel is a really good card against KCI, a really good card against Blue Red Phoenix decks. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why people are going to it now. Uh, someone uh, last week, I think it was Stan, called uh, the Phoenix deck Better Burn. But it's interesting that Better Burn loses to Normal Burn still. Yeah, this has always been my my feeling about that too is as i've played all the different arc light decks i feel like they just lose to burn that wasn't me i i never said that <laughs> i never said that don't you ever quote me on that i, I was not president of that conversation you said that it was an interesting way for burn to evolve was by adding arc light phoenix and becoming sort of a different thing ah uh, yes i vaguely remember this now and i think it's <laughs> one of the most trenchant points you've ever made so please take credit <laughs> for it Guys, do you anything else you want to talk about regarding the the modern finals? Well, I think the thing that I also wanted to open the floor to is just before we get into kind of like our big uh, dive down topic is what have you guys been playing lately? What have you what have you guys been doing? Have people been able to get out and play some over the holidays or what? I hung out with a mouse down in Florida. Yes, I got to play yesterday. Actually, I did four rounds at Good Games on Webster Street, uh, and I actually played Blue Red Arclight. <laughs> Uh, and I did okay. I went two two, but for what it's worth, I went two two the same night that, like earlier that day, I drove in from Florida after doing a twenty four hour drive, and I still decided to go play modern. That like, oh, you're a mad really man. Sleeping well, so uh, this is this is why you're on a modern podcast, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I did okay. I beat Infect and I beat the ArcLight Hollow One deck. And yes. I lost to a Goblin Token Brew as well as Amulet. I have not been playing at all. It's uh, really depressing. I did get more Russian cards for my Tron deck, though, so that's very important. High five. <laughs> <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen, please come on the podcast. Yeah. He loves Tron. Zach or too. Dave, did you guys play anything over the holidays? Yeah, I played um, MTGO. I jammed a couple leagues with Scred and went 3-2 in both of them. I feel like the deck is losing a little bit of its steam right now, or maybe I'm not on the cold streak, etc., but such is life. Do you think there's anything in the meta that is affecting Scred's performance? Are are you struggling against specific decks or cards? Yeah, so um, a big problem... If I change my main deck, which is a funny thing to say, but if I... uh, Grixis Death Shadow is a very hard matchup because... 
they get down threats that avoid spread for many turns in a row because they're getting down a Tassiger or, or um, a fish on, you know, two or three turn or four. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to kill that with spread until turn five at the earliest. Oh, uh, yeah. Or unless I'm doubling up on removal, too. So when that deck is ubiquitous, there's a lot of it. I do less good. And that deck is, like I said, if they know what I'm like, if they see the so covered mountain and know I'm spread, they could fetch around the blood moon. And then they also have a very good counter spell that hits on my walkers and stubborn denial. So I'm trying to play my walkers on curve so I don't have the mana to pay for it. And it just rolls me over. Uh, I've been playing Hollow Phoenix, which is oh, my, really? my sort of favorite deck to play right now just because I think it's fun and interesting. And I um I I took it through a couple leagues over the weekend. I had some like weird timing problems. Like for the most aggro deck ever, I actually lost a match to the clock somehow. <laughs> Huh. which is insane because I usually play games in like four minutes of my clock time, but I, this game went super long and I lost a match to the clock. Some other stuff happened. So I, and I leave my keyboard in the middle of a match, which is always fun on moto to come back and have to apologize to people. But, um, sorry, I'm a dad. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, one thing I think I thought that was really interesting is it, it just seems like people are starting to adjust to Arclight Phoenix in general and start to know like, Hey, this is how I should, combat it or they're starting to play decks that are good against it or you're starting to see more things with graveyard hate and so i'm probably going to try to do some stuff not with arc light for a little bit and see how it goes i have grixis death shadow and paper so i might get that out online and um try to take that through a couple of leagues because i i did that recently and did pretty well with it so i might just kind of get used to my my more mid-rangey kind of plan um although the current gds decks are a little bit more you know they're more team or battle ragey yeah, they're more aggressive. The old ones, they're definitely more aggressive. I mean, I kind of miss the fact that these ones are not running like a lot of Coligan's commands in the main. They're running them the sideboard, which is kind of a bummer, but I get it. Uh, so I think that I'll probably switch over to, to Death Shadow and see see how that goes for a little bit. I got two thoughts on that real quick. Number one, I think that the card Roast and Dismember, those cards are becoming more main deckable index. I'm running both of them. It hits both TT and all the stuff from uh, Grixis Death Shadow. And then in regards to Colgon's Command, I've actually faced Grixis Shadow a ton in the leagues, and I've seen that card almost every single game. Because they'll blow up a Mind Stone, make me discard a card, and it's so brutal every single time. Or blow up a Relic before I can crack it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why people have it in the side, but the only reason I can think is that they just are trying to get to, we're just going to team or battle rage you with, with something as fast as possible. Yeah, they're sure. they're they're going back to more aggressive right now, but it might make sense to become more mid rangey. Depends on what's happening, right? But they're not going to the Jund build, which is interesting. No. That it's sort of like, oh, Tarmogoyf isn't good enough, I guess, because of the splash graveyard hate. I think Angler's just better in that deck than Tarmogoyf is, right? Yeah, I think it depends on what you're you're trying to do as far as if you're going to use Traverse the Ulimwald and stuff like that or not. Sure, but um, yeah, I guess so. I definitely am more familiar with the Grixis one than the Jund one, so I'll give it another shot. That deck hasn't like changed its tech, right? It's just <laughs> changing its configuration for the meta. Uh, as far as I can tell, there aren't any new cards that are appearing in in the list since yeah. like the last time it was popular. A little bit of looting, more t- more, more faceless looting. Uh, yeah, it sometimes runs runs faceless looting. It didn't used to. Um, it didn't used to run Dismember main deck, which the third place deck from this uh this modern finals is is doing it has two 
of those it, it used to run like terminate and stuff like that sometimes but now it's running dismember instead which makes sense it's an easier card to cast um it didn't used to take the time to put four ley line in the void in the sideboard so it's it's all like you said it's just configuring around the metagame instead of um instead of picking up any new cards cool stuff what a fun dynamic format we're talking yeah. about today sort of going all the way back to to 18 months ago if if grix's death shadow is coming back towards the top of the heap it's pretty interesting to see and totally unexpected for me yeah, yeah. people are a little down on um modern i feel lately and i i think that people are fi- finding a way to to fight against like the blue red arc light decks um i've been reading some people say that the hand disruption element uh, kind of slows down like the turbo um cantripping so like you know if you strip out people's ability to cast all those spells and then they're just kind of stranded in their hand and they can't really do anything so makes sense to me if you're if you're able to get if you're able to stop people's game plans while aggressively finishing them off with a with a team or battle rage death shadow or you know gigantic fish then you're going to probably win some games so guys, I think it's about time we go into our main topic and, you know, episode three, we're going to be talking about planeswalkers. So we're going to examine uh, when planeswalkers are good for modern. Why aren't they played more often? Because they do dominate standards so frequently. And so let's take a quick break here and then we'll go into our next section. So as we said, in this segment, we're going to be talking about Planeswalkers in Modern. And, you know, Planeswalkers are pretty rad, right? They're powerful. They're interesting. They do... Got some real good memories about Planeswalkers, guys, right? We're oh, just going to spend a lot of time going down memory lane here. I, I cast so many Sarkin, Dragon Speakers, and Con Standard. What a fun It was card. nice. What a fun standard. Um. But, you know, they don't really show up in modern too often. So what we're going to do in this segment is we're going to talk about uh, the walkers that do get played, talk about what makes a walker playable in modern, and talk about how they're used and how we use them, and potentially which ones could be seeing more or less play depending on the the metagame that you find yourself in, the kind of decks that you like to play. Um, just have a good old discussion about these things. That sound good to you and guys? Then we're talk about, and then we're going to talk about spoilers. A little oh, bit. Oh, Tiny. yeah. Just a little, a little bit. preview. Yeah, yeah. we kind of got the idea for doing this segment based on the new three mana planeswalkers that were spoiled for the upcoming. Man, I still forget what this set is called. Ravnica, Ravnica Allegiance. Allegiance. Revenge Thank of Ravnica? You. Revenge of Ravnica. I Cruise appreciate control. it. <laughs> so, um, Zach, I want you to kind of take the reins on this one because you have a, you, you play more walkers than I think most of us actually with spread. I play um, eight main deck currently. That oh is, gosh. that is more, that is a lot of planes walkers. I, so it's, that's, questionable, uh, it's questionable. That's almost as many walkers as I own in my entire MPG <laughs> collection. No, that can't be true. You can't say something like that to me. Maybe, maybe I own a, little, a few more, but it's close. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of planes walkers. So I think it is interesting to talk about because there's currently 116 different walkers that are modern legal. Six of those are ones that start in creatures and flip. That's like a huge number, right? But only sudden like really 10 are played out of that huge amount. 
So I think it's neat to look at one of the ones that is played a lot, which is Liliana the Veil. And like the top 50 spells that are being played in modern, she's the only walker in them. And she's uh, ubiquitous in a lot of decks that can run her. Yeah, so does that mean she's really important to Jund, um, which is probably the deck she's most regularly played in? Yeah, she sees main main deck play in Jund, like basically any black mid-range strategy where she's going to be in, you know, Jund, uh, Black Green Rock, Mardu Pyromancer, she'll show yes, up. Low quantity, maybe two. Yeah, lower maybe quantity. One. You know, if, if Obzon ever gets played again, she's in that. Um, she's on the sideboard for Hollow One lately. She's not always there. And then Grixis Death Shadow will play one or two of her. I think primarily against, you know, mirror decks because she does so well against low creature count decks. Right. She's in Grixis Control, guys. Hey, if you ever want to get into that deck. <laughs> <laughs> Buy into the hot new meta. So kind of Liliana is, I think, the poster woman for modern playable planeswalkers. And I, th- I think there's a combination of factors for that, right? Like, I mean, I'm going to talk about Liliana because I think I've probably cast the most of her um, playing yeah. so many black green midrange decks. Um, you know, I think what makes her good is, she, so she costs three, right? And even though she comes down with a pretty low starting loyalty, she's almost always going to be at least a two for one. And I think that's what makes three CMC spells in modern um, playable is when they become a two for one. So we see that in things like Eternal Witness with Coligan's Command and with Liliana of the Veil. Anger of the Gods even, right? Yeah, I mean, like you know, sweepers are going to be multiples for ones, right? So exactly. you know, when you start when you start casting a three CMC spell, you really are going to want to get a lot of value out of it. And the way Liliana does that is she can come down and you know she can either edict the opponent and remove that creature, remove a creature, and then maybe she eats a burn spell from the opponent, right? The opponent has to put some effort into getting her off the board. Um, but when she's pr- you know, protected by other creatures or the opponent has no w- a way to remove her, she can really start taking over a game by removing cards from the opponent's hand. And either you, you know, if it's a control strategy, they're trying to hold on to their cards while you're playing your cards to the board. And then you're getting them to toss out uh, lands. And for control decks, they want to be playing those lands. It may, they might be their, their higher CMC counter spells where they're, they're going to try keeping their lower CMC stuff. So basically, you're getting cards out of your opponent's hand. And even if you are removing, uh, say, a redundant land from your hand, um, you are getting value because you are ticking up your Planeswalker. And so then you're preventing your opponent from ever sticking another creature because, you know, if you have Liliana on five, they play anything down to the board, you're going to edict it away the next turn and just keep getting, you know, multiple cards of value out of a Liliana in the best case scenario. Yeah, that's the surprising part about her when you read when you read it, I think, is just how often it turns out where you're like, oh man, I have to play two creatures in a turn, or I have to play a haste creature, or I have to get a lightning bolt or something like that, because you can't just get to get one creature down, wait for it to not have summoning sickness anymore, and then swing into her because she just will destroy it. Yeah. When when Liliana is good, she is very good. Like you can you can get a ton of value out of a Liliana in some games, but she's not always great. Because, you know, in a, in a deck that tries to play a lot of creatures to the board, like humans or spirits. Merfolk, goblins, yeah, etc. 
Yeah, you slam her to the board. They've got five creatures in play. Maybe, maybe let's say be reasonable. Let's say they have three creatures in play, and you put her down and edict her, edict your opponent. They remove their lowest value creature from the board. Uh, next turn, they swing one of their creatures into into her. She dies, and you basically had a very expensive removal spell. That's about it for of their of their of their least value creature. Right. Um, and then also the three CMC. Um, walkers we see Liliana the last hope and she is slowly creeping up to be seen almost the equal of Liliana of the Vale right so she's more run as like a one or two of in the same decks as Liliana of the Vale but she offers a different kind of value Um, you know her plus can do a lot to slow down opposing aggressive strategies or even pick off uh, they say a spirit token or a mana dork um and and her minus gets a lot of value by getting creatures back out of the yard, either ones that are already in there or the ones she mills off the top of your deck. Um, and what's really important about her plus is that, you know, by also protecting her in some way, by removing uh, opposing power for a whole turn, uh, it works towards her ultimate, which is truly game ending. And in a few turns, if your opponent is unable to to get Liliana the Last Hope off the board, um, you are going to win the game. Absolutely, I've lost to it before, and it feels uh, it feels very thematic, like on flavor. Like you feel the impending doom because, like, you can kill the tokens at first, then you run out of it, and they just keep coming and coming, and they kill you. Oh yeah, yeah. But what's the real thing that's an uh, indicator of why these cards are played for me anyway? It's that they're three mana cost exactly and sure. three is such a huge indicator of something that can be broken for a in a planeswalker that i think it really makes you stop and want to look at them and go okay how good is this is this good how narrow is this card you know liliana both of these lilianas are able to be used in like basically any mid-range deck like you said and so they just become totally crazy because of that wouldn't you almost always prefer lily of the veil it seems like she has slightly more relevant utility. Yeah, I mean, typically, I mean, she's run more of, and so people still are on the the decision that you know we're going to run three to four Liliana the Veil and maybe a one of main deck of Liliana the Last Hope, and in a real small creature meta game, you might run two Liliana the Last Hopes. But yeah, I think that yes, I agree with you, Stan. You're correct. I think that no one's going to argue that point. I mean, one thing that's super interesting about Liliana of the Last Hope is that she can actually, it's one of the only cards that can fight through both halves of uh, Lingering Souls as a single card, which is just something to think about is that, like you said, she's really good against small creature metagames or something like that. You know, token strategies, if those are popular, she's good against that. I also think that putting stuff into the graveyard like she does, you know, what that reads to a lot of people is, oh, I get to get a card back if I get a creature. But it also means that you get to put things in graveyard for stuff like dredge and things like that if you're if you're doing yep. that kind of strategy as well. Not dredge, by the way. I keep calling uh, delve dredge. I mean delve. Yeah, and she also can... I mean, she can run away with games in a slightly different way than Liliana of the Veil. Like, if you, if you do a few removal spells and, you know, the board's clear on your opponent's side... Um, and then you stick a Lily out of the last hope and they're unable to get any attacks in on her. Like I said, she quickly ticks up to that ultimate and you win the game with it. So what you're saying is that you think Lily, the last hope's ultimate is better than the Lily of the Veils. 
I think so. I mean, it's 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 impossible to beat. I think. I mean, sure. unless you are yeah. unless you're very very far ahead on the opponent's side, it's just an impossible, never ending wave of zombies. Right. So you wanted to ask about the other three CMC guy, which is Gideon of the Trials. Yeah. Every time I I face down a Gideon of the Trials, I am like, why is this not played more? Like it it does a lot for three. Totally. Yeah. I I was gonna say that actually that I think he might be underplayed and because uh, he's so good but there's like i don't know there's some matchups where uh he's not great because of too many creatures on the board and he's kind of like lily of the last hope in that way where if you're facing a board with three creatures unless you're doing gideon tribal and you want to get that emblem he's doesn't really do a ton of damage to or like doesn't have a big impact on the board state Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think kind of what happened with getting the trials actually is, you know, before Jace was unbanned and before um, Teferi was printed, there was a pretty decent blue-white control deck that was starting to come together that was very Gideon-heavy. You know, it ran Gideon 3 and Gideon 5, and um, I played that deck a few times, and getting the trials was great in it. But then once both those other two Planeswalkers became available – the deck shifted to become much more heavy on the control side instead of sort of being like a, you know, with getting the trials, it was sort of like a control deck that had a, an efficient beater in it. So you could sometimes kind of sneak your way to a faster win. But once those other two guys, Jason Teferi were available, you kind of moved it directly into that longer game plan control deck. So quick question for you then. I agree. I saw that the Gideon blue eye control deck and the, and they also had search for us Kanta. That was like right before, Jace got unbanded to fairy became a thing. I think. I so, think I played that deck against you when the first time we met. Oh, there. Well, there we go. Actually, That's the memory Zach. I have then. <laughs> but do you think that Teferi and Jace are actually better, or that people just switched to it and stuck with it instead of trying out the Gideon deck again? Um, I think that for the game plan, that's sort of like, hey, we're you know, that's the real classic blue white control plan which is like sweepers and card advantage and stick a big permanent with counters to protect it i think that jason um jason teferi are better for sure because what they do is they help you focus in on a plan where you're gonna win with um win with celestial colonnade more okay and so basically you sort of didn't need the extra win conditions that we're coming off of, of Gideon as it turns out. And Teferi is just so good at basically being a three mana planeswalker, even though it costs five, uh, that it comes kind of with protection with it. You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. So what other three CMC play, planeswalkers are there out there right now? So the only other one that I can think of off the top of my head is Sahili Rai, which oh, gets oh, like extremely fringe play, but I think is one card that's sort of like people should remember exists because there's always the chance that there's going to be another card that gets printed into modern that is like Felidar guardian basically it's probably a small chance and who knows maybe they'll accidentally print it'll accidentally be a a cheaper mana cost (laughs) maybe they accidentally um, accidentally mess it up (laughs) yeah it could totally happen i've played against some shahili rai um combo decks that seem perfectly good stan you've played this deck correct yeah, I played Jeskai Sahili for a minute. Um, 
I, I didn't really care for it. I, I didn't think it was good in either the combo plan or the control plan. And uh, maybe it could be better in a different meta. But I, I I got cold on it very quickly. I was just like, this is just bad against practically everything. <laughs> There's uh, Ashiok, but Ashiok's really only in some weird rogue brews. Yeah, Demir Control or whatever. Yeah, I've seen it in the sideboard and mill sometimes where if you know they have a super value creature they want to hit or you want to mess with a creature combo or something, that is a very fringe deck. And I don't think every meta even requires that, but it does see some play there. There's also the three drop Nisa that I think oh, is yeah. Oh, yeah. A f- also fringe playable and brings up a good segue slash point about walkers and that what makes a walker good or what are you looking for one to do? And what the three drop Nisa does is her plus one makes a zero one plant token. And like people often say that the way to judge a walker, the way to view a walker is if it protects itself. So is that, so usually that means ticking up and providing some sort of blocker or value or removal on the same note. So in a way, does Lily of the, of the veil protect herself if we're value, you know, for measuring by that value, because she does make someone sacrifice and discard, but is that protection? Yeah, I think asking for protection of your three mana walkers is is a little bit more than you're going to get. I think most of the most of the walkers that will create an actual creature with any real value are typically higher CMC. Absolutely, and those creatures usually tick down for it. Uh, I think that the only one that ticks up might be Elspeth, the four drop one that makes a soldier. So, but I mean. W- does a card like does Karn protect himself because you play him and he exiles something? Is that protection? I think that's in the different template of uh, Planeswalkers, which is my favorite uh, thing to point out. Which is like fifty percent of Planeswalkers are Obnixilis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Elaborate on that. That's a good thought. Which is basically they're around five mana, five CMC, right? They their plus draws a card in some form. Their minus uh, eliminates a threat, like has some kind of removal spell, and then they have some kind of absurd ultimate. So if you think about the list of people who kind of fit in that bucket, basically Teferi is in there, Obnixilis is in there, the new Ralzeric is in there. Um, there's a couple other ones that are in the same kind of zone as that. Yeah, and really what I'm hearing is that it's a really clean template for two for oneing or more, which is <laughs> what we talked about with Lily of the Veil being pretty much her bread and butter at three mana. I, I was going to save this for the end of, of this discussion, <laughs> but I'll just throw it out here now, which is basically, I think the way to judge uh, Planeswalker is how often you're going to get a two for one or a three for one out of it. Just regardless of what the, the mana cost is, regardless of of kind of the way that it works, unless it's some weird combo thing like Sahili, it's like, do you want a two for one at five CMC? You should play Teferi. You know, like that's kind of where it's at. Yeah, yeah I mean, honestly, Walker is just really fair, fundamentally, right? I mean, they're, they're fair cards and modern is mostly an unfair format. And so that's I think that's one reason we do see so few of them actually see play is because you know the the reason that Liliana of the Veil and Liliana of the Last Hope get played in these black green you know these black mid-range decks is that these are just a pile of good cards. You know, sure. it's, it's not really they're not really advancing any particular strategy. I wanna touch on this two for one mentality um and bring up Jace the Mind Sculptor. And Ooh. yeah please 
because I'd never really considered him through that lens. And I'm curious, what are some realistic lines wherein he can be a two for one? Um, Like it's just brainstorm plus eating a lightning bolt count. Is that good enough in, in modern? I think the metric is harder to measure because the value created by his fate seal is crazy good against a deck like uh, Scred, where either my top deck's my bomb that's going to win or it's a land, and you can see the bomb that's going to win and just get rid of it. I'm like, I can't win anymore. And there are other analogous examples for other decks where it's, oh, you're going to win with this card. No, not anymore. And it just helps you really nail nail down the control game you're going for. Yeah, I, I think that Jace is harder to put on that axis. But also, by the way, I think we should have a drinking game where anytime someone on this podcast has access, everybody has to drink. But um, yeah, I'll sip my LaCroix. How Jay- about that? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I'll drink for you, I guess. The I think it's harder to pin it down in those terms, but there is this massive kind of card quality advantage that Fate Seal does. Because, you know, like Zach said, sometimes you catch something that you know is going to be bad for you and get to put on the bottom. But honestly, with Chase, what I think you really want to do is find something that's bad and leave it on the top, right? Because that's the 70% play is basically, oh, you're going to draw nothing next turn. And I know for sure that you're going to draw nothing, nothing next turn. So I'm just going to leave that there for you to draw nothing. That's And that's that combined percentage of milling away your bad cards and also leaving or milling away good cards and also leaving a bad card on top <clears throat> is sort of uh, makes him really kind of, cho- you know, control the game really fast. So would you say that's him protecting himself? No, I do think that's one of the weaknesses of Jace is that he, he into a board where there's a lot of pressure on it. He's actually really, really bad and his bounce ability is not re- generally good enough to save him. No, it is not. I have found that if my opponent is uh, bouncing my creatures with Jace, I'm in a good spot. Yeah. hundred. It makes me wonder sometimes whether you ever want to bounce with Jace, anything other than like a worm coil token. Because <laughs> <laughs> seriously, if, you, if you're casting four mana to for like a very brief tempo play, because you're behind, that seems like a horrible way to spend that resource. Yeah, and it also minuses him. <laughs> For one. Yeah, what right, does Jace. make Jace so good? Bye though? bye. Fate Seal. Uh, th- that was my takeaway when I started playing with him. Was the Fate Seal is just so crazy if you're at parity or ahead. What? What? Not the free. Not the free. Un like non modern playable brainstorm. Correct. I I got to go with Shane on this personally. You You think brainstorm is what makes him so good? Yeah, I mean, it's the combination of the two, but the fact that you can improve your own car- card quality so much with Jace is that realistically, in a, in a format with fetch lands, I yeah. think that Brainstorm might be worth four mana. You know, just yeah, to shuffles cast away it garbage. Lay it down, shuffles away bad cards. I mean, it could be a draw. It could be a draw three for four, which isn't the best in the world, but that's sort of like the worst case scenario. So, yeah, not even fetches, even like a field of ruin in blue white, you know. Mwah. <laughs> yeah anything that shuffles up your deck so i guess what we could say if we if we kind of look at this in chapters is we looked at three cmc planeswalkers that's a good spot for, to know that something could potentially be broken we're starting to talk about four cmc ones and that's where things get a lot more in this sort of utility there's a lot more of them there right yeah what what but value do you have a four? yeah so i run 
uh, three four drop walkers in Scred. Uh, Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, I run Koth of the Hammer, and I think he is actually a good way to measure what you need a walker to do in that he ultimates two turns after being out, and his ultimate is very powerful in a deck that can do it correctly. His ultimate is minus five. You get an emblem, mountains you control, tap, deal one damage to any target. So after I get that, it is very hard for me to lose because I can just wait, hold up mountains, kill creatures, etc. And he, his plus creates a 4-4 four, four that can attack or actually leave mana open for your one-mana spells. So he applies pressure and has a quick ultimate, so I think that's a good way to measure a, a certain way of these walkers. Is that that's a what a four drop has to be? They have to be able to do this. Other things too, but this is one version of that. They have to be able to apply pressure and ultimate quickly. I think that's what makes Koth somewhat unique is that his ultimate is very realistic in that it takes two turns while also defending himself to get there. Um, I don't think too many other walkers that we're going to look at today are trying or like ultimating as frequently as Koth does in the right decks. Koth is like a game plan walker too, right? Like he, he fits into your game plan extremely well, which is pretty rare. Right. Yeah. Most decks are just trying to get, well, I'd say the, the only analogy to that is Grook wild speaker in the mono green devotion decks, the yes, decks that exactly. are big mana decks where you are looking to play him on turn two and then do stupid stuff from there. But yeah, a lot of other four drops. Well, we mentioned Jace, which is just part of the control decks. And I think that another card, which is not played as much as it used to be, is Nahiri. And I think that part of why Nahiri is not as good is because of Jace. And I think that the fate-saving ability makes a card like that less good. Yeah, one of the things about Nahiri that you mentioned, too, is that she ultimates quickly, right? Exactly, so- yes. Yeah, when you when you get her down and you and you plus her twice, then the third turn you basically can win the game if you're doing the Emrakul combo that she was popular in for a bit. You try to, unless what used to happen to me all the time was I would draw Emrakul in the Jeskai <laughs> Nahiri deck that I had, and then I would I couldn't get rid of it. So <laughs> so that was always fun. Um, I do think it's an interesting point, though, Zach, that a lot of these four four mana planeswalkers have that ability to have a plan around them like Nahiri does and Koth does and Chandra sort of does. And, you know, it's pretty cool. And even Karn a little bit, the new Karn has a little bit of that where you kind of, you can just make an army of things to beat down with and just kind of stay there. You don't even have to do anything with drawing cards necessarily off of him. See, I was going to ask Zach to talk about Chandra more because I see her kind of as just a big utility box for a red deck. Yeah, so I run her different. In Scred, it's not the way you'd run her in like a mono prison deck. Uh, I only run two instead of the four there. And it's just, she is good because she doesn't have like, you know, it's not like Koth where it's answer this or I'm going to win very quickly. But she can either draw you cards, she can remove stuff. And like, it's not impossible that like, I've played her, like played a Mind Stone, played a Relic, cracked the Relic in the same turn. You know what I mean? Like she allows some like, goofy tempo stuff as well, but she just does so many different things. And I think that's another, like, you know, obviously the comparison is Jace the Mind Sculptor at four with four abilities. But I think just the, if a walker can let you do a bunch of different things, that's good, right? Like if it can draw and do removal, that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Although I will say the when, hearing you guys talk about it right now, I, I, I probably threw her into the wrong bucket though. I actually think she's probably an op, an Obnixilis. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, that's fine. She draws a card. She kills a thing. She just has this mana ability tacked onto her, but it's a lot more clear than what you're supposed to do with her than kind of Jace, right? Where he's just kind yeah, of yeah. Her ultimate's also crazy good too. I've won with that more than a few games. It'll just get you there. Like you play it and then you play a bolt and that's eight damage. Yeah. Do you remember the game that you and I played where you ultimated with that and you had a handful of blood moons and I was playing mono red? <laughs> and I killed you with blood moons. You killed me with blood moons that that didn't matter, but did five damage to me because I couldn't kill you fast enough in return. Yeah, that's, that was fun times. There we go, that, and that's that's why that card is good. So, um, one other four mana walker that does see play sometimes, but it's typically I think when when Obzon is kind of a thing is we have Gideon, ally of Zendikar, who's just a house. Um, but he's really great against mid-range mirrors because he just creates so much value in the creatures he creates. But uh, And also the, his attacking value is really high. But I think there's just, I mean, we, white is not one of the, the better colors in modern. And so Gideon ally of Zendikar is not going to see a lot of play because white doesn't see a lot of play. Yeah, that's definitely true. It sees, like you said, like some play in like when Abzan's good and like black-white tokens will pop up every now and then and have it. I think... One of the really neat things to me about it is it's the only card that provides a creature buff that can't be interacted with because he makes the emblem that gives creatures plus one plus one. No other card creates a buff that, you know, is beyond interaction. I don't think that's even particularly good right now, but it's just neat to me. Mm -hmm. He's also one of the only ones that makes a creature for zero. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty interesting too. I mean, it's a powerful card. I just feel like this is one of those ones that falls into the bucket of, like Shane said, Planeswalkers are kind of fair cards. Many of them are fair cards. And this is one that is very fair. And so it's made to dominate standard. And then when you get into something where someone's going, uh, I'm going to attack with two Hollow Ones and two Arclight Phoenixes on turn three. Right. Uh, <laughs> Gideon can't really keep up with that, you know? <laughs> No, no, he cannot. All right, guys. So what about this guy, Teferi, Hero of Dominaria? He seems okay. Yeah, I really like this litmus test that we're developing right now about the framework of most walkers, you know, whether they pass the Obnixilis test or whether they pass the two-for-one test. And it seems like Teferi does both. Yeah, absolutely he does. Yeah, what makes Teferi so good players of Teferi, which I am not? I was going to say, who here has cast a Teferi? I have cast Teferi. I've done it in Magic Arena, but not in paper. Okay. I think the the number one thing, honestly, for me is the uh, untapped two lands. Yeah. I agree. Like far and away, right? It's bananas in modern. Card. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And then when you play it in Legacy and you untap Gaius Cradle, it's just like, whoa. Not really. Burr, 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 burr. Uh, yeah. Well, Gaius Cradle exists in standard now, thanks to. Oh, that's true. What is it like? Right of Spring. Of yeah, that's a lot of work, and there's not even a payoff for it in standard currently, to my knowledge. Yeah, you're. At any rate, yeah, let's, let's not go it to a different path. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean that was the thing. The first time I played with Teferi. I randomly opened one in a box of Dominaria and I like threw it in my blue eyed control deck just for fun. I was like, Oh, this seems cool. And I only have one Jace. So let's see what happens. And I played it and I was like, what? This is so good. And then it started popping up all over the place and it was, uh, it was good. 
Um, but it's definitely the untapping because it lets you keep up uh, negate or whatever your two mana uh, counterspell of choice is. Now, in the case of the Jeskai builds, it just lets you kind of cast another lightning bolt if you draw one, basically, which is also really good. Doesn't he also remove basically any permanent? Yes. yes. And what's funny is like I have not often found myself in a position where I have to activate that ability. I know that that's an atypical thing for people. Well, but it's similar he does to Jason in that regard. Permanent. If you're doing that right. with Teferi, you're usually on your back leg. Yeah. He's sort of just like a really sweet howling mine in modern, usually, I think, <laughs> <laughs> that someone has to kill. And then if you're doing it with Search for Ascanta, then it's like, whoa, whoa, wombo combo, guys, because you're, uh, you know, at the end of the game, you're like, okay, well, I'm definitely, I'm looking at eight cards a turn, so I'm definitely going to find some stuff that's going to help me out. Yeah, I mean, he's also drawing a card, too, right? So that never hurts, a control deck. Yeah. yeah. Is Teferi the best Planeswalker in modern? No. Okay, <laughs> Okay, we're done now. It's been a good episode. I think so. It's going to dive down. You can find our social media. <laughs> no, well, let's let's ask that question again, what we think, the or let's each vote on the best Walker in modern at the end of our discussion. Yeah, because okay. we have a couple more people we need to talk about at higher CMCs. Correct. True. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. So, in, speaking of uh, control walkers, Dave, I know you've cast a Gideon Jura or two against me and some of our yeah. playing. Um, is he still around? No. Oh, <laughs> R.I.P. He He's another one who I would throw. I think all Gideons have been uh, like sort of not all Gideons. By, not all Gideons. Yeah, not all Gideons. They've they've all been kind of outmoded by the Jason Teferi package, which I think is just better for the blue white decks basically. And so maybe you'll see a Gideon Jura show up occasionally. It's a cool card. It's a useful card. It kills creatures, but it's just not as good as drawing cards and manipulating card quality or manipulating your opponent's card quality. Yeah. Another five CMC Walker who is basically only a one or two of in some like black, like a green black mid range decks is this a vital force. Mm. And she's a real house. I mean, she's a great, Great card against opposing mid-range and control decks. So, you know, her her plus applies pressure. She gets any permanent back out of the graveyard with her minus. So not just creatures like Liliana, Liliana the Last Hope. So, I mean, she's she's great, but she's, you know, she is too expensive to be main deck. So she's only going to come in against slower decks where she can create some value for those mid-range decks. And I think that's kind of what we're going to see in modern. I mean, five CMC spells are extremely rare in modern uh i was gonna say that i've used nisa vild force in a red green scred build which is sort of like a red green mid-range value deck with you know a blood braid elf tyler's tracker etc and i found her to be very very good in that deck where either she applies pressure because when the creature she makes is a creature until your next turn like it doesn't stop so you have a five five up if you need it and then later she can grab back a walker she can grab back an ewit yada yada and just the the value that if she lives for more than two turns that she creates is just very unreal. But it has to be in that very certain kind of deck. Let's look like a you know a green X mid-range deck. I feel like outside of that, there's not really a home for her. Yeah. She's also kind of a unique walker. She doesn't look like Obnixilis. Yeah, that's true. She, she looks like a Nissa, do you know what I mean? Like Nissa usually has a pretty like a design much like that, which is good. Like I'm, th- I'm thinking about World Waker 
from uh, a few years ago. Like she was around a lot, you know, she made a, a land into a creature um, or she created some ramp by untapping some forests for you. Yeah. yeah okay. I gotcha. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's interesting is that if you look at the most commonly played spells in modern, according to goldfish, there isn't a single card that is uh, five CMC, including Teferi. Does not appear in the top fifty of spells. Yeah, yeah, and it's just too expensive. The format's too fast. Yeah, so Teferi shows up. It's around. It's good, but um, the other ones are a little bit tougher. Yeah, ex- except unless you're casting Karn on with on with three mana. I am looking at this list wondering if they don't include planeswalkers on here because Karn is also not on this list. So maybe that's crazy. Maybe this is more something more of a note for uh, Seth and the crew over at Goldfish that they that planeswalkers need to appear somewhere because I would expect yeah. that Karn would be somewhere that would be above Ick or Wellspring, for example, <laughs> at number fifty. <laughs> Seth, get on it. Fix this table. Are planeswalkers not spells? <laughs> oh man um i'm gonna talk about karn because you know what uh, i like karn but like for no i love karn karn's great um he's like a, he's like i mean because for a, for a player who likes casting liliana of the veil karn's basically like a really big bad liliana so he, he comes down his minus removes whatever permanent he needs to um and which can even cut the opponent off their mana so that's why he's such a strong like turn three on the play um, card to cast because you can just come down. Like I remember, Sam, we played. We were playing a game and testing where I, I cast him on turn three and like removed like your blue red dual land. And you're just like, well, scoop. Like I like I have no ability to recover from this right now because either you know if you mull and you only have two lands or something like that. So it just gets rid of anything that you want. But he does suffer from some of the same issues against go wide decks like Lily of the Veil. So any can be worse on the draw than on the play. So I think that it's it's one of the things that I've learned from uh, reading up on Tron strategy is that you should be willing to sideboard him out, maybe shave a few, or if you really have a lot of sideboard cards to come in, you can you can shave more than a few because he's not always insane. On the play, he's very good, and you know he's one of the most feared turn three plays in all of modern. So Karn's awesome. He he costs seven, but we know that's really three. <laughs> yeah, gross. And and <laughs> I mean, and, and Ugin's the same way. I mean, if Ugin costs seven, then that would be completely broken because when Ugin comes down, the game often just ends when he's played because he just sweeps away everything that the opponent has played up until that point, right? And then he stays on the board almost always because his, his loyalty is so high. And then he can just direct damage to a creature, to the other player, and then just threaten to wipe away anything that the opponent plays in subsequent turns with the minus again. So Ugin is is a is a true game ender for you know one CMC more. He's he effectively costs four in Trump. So are you saying that Karn and Ugin are sort of a different category of Walker than what we've been comparing to because when you play them, they ideally take over the game immediately, right? They provide so much value that you're just going to win. Well, I think I think there's a I think it's it's somewhat rare that a turn three Karn effectively ends the game. I think that sure, it just game. feels like it sometimes. I guess on the uh, receiving end of it, yeah. I mean, he's basically Liliana. He's basically a really good Liliana. I think that's how I look at him in a lot of ways. Um, 
But I think could you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, I think that I mean in terms of like his his plus exiles a card from the opponent's hand, much like Liliana of the Veils plus. Although I don't, you know, it's only the opponent, except for it's not symmetrical. Yeah, it's not symmetrical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he costs he costs he costs seven, so I want more value out of that. So uh, he would be strictly better than Liliana if he was actually three mana rather than ostensibly right. three, but. I mean, exiling a target permanent rather than edicting your opponent is strictly better, right? Also absurd. Yeah, I mean, there there is a reason he costs seven, Stan. I mean, yeah, and six loyalty is the other thing. He's he's hard to kill. Lily dies to bolt. Yeah, I mean his his minus his minus brings him down um, a little bit more, and then um, his his ultimate is really wild uh, in that. It doesn't automatically win the game; it just restarts the game. I've never actually had to do that, but I'm looking forward to the first time I do. That's for sure. Uh, I had that happen to me in Vegas 2015 Modern Masters whoa. Two Limited, where someone ultimated a Karn against me, and we restarted the game, and they just wrecked me. Yeah. Of course, because the, but but it was like turn 18 <laughs> of our initial game, and uh, yeah. I was never the same after that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like you asked, like you asked Zach. I mean, U- yeah, Ugin is just a different animal altogether. Um, he's a spirit dragon, actually. That's his animal type. So <laughs> keep, keep him coming. <laughs> what's, what? Hey, everybody, can we stop for a second? What's your animal type? <laughs> oh, do you mean like? Well, I'm a cancer, so I'm a crab. If that's the okay. Question. Crab type. Okay, Stan. What's your fighting style animal type? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm a fish man. You You're a fish man. Yeah, I thought you oh. were an elf ooze. Yeah, or an elf like, crab. Yeah, he's definitely an elf crab. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't understand the game, guys. It's so late. <laughs> I'm a wild. You guys, McCattle. we're doing a little improv here, Shane. You're uh, so you're a wild in the cattle. Yeah, I'm a friendly horse. If anybody wonders, <laughs> I didn't. Thank you. Okay, I agree with that. With that review, that rating of Dave. So, <laughs> all right, where were we? <laughs> I think what's important to, to talk about, though, is is what would what makes new walkers modern playable. Like when you when you examine oh, okay. when you examine a new a new planeswalker that gets spoiled, um, like uh, Kaya Orzov or Serper and Dovin Grand Arbiter from the new set that's i still can't remember like, it's uh alliances allegiances the ravnica, ravnica agreement okay ravnica, <laughs> ravnica agreement the ravnica pact right so do you guys want to talk about these so hang on hang okay, on i'm hanging I, I, I do want to put a little bit of a point on on what oh, you just oh, said please do so what are the baseline the baseline good things that we found about planeswalkers right three mana is very very good if it's possible yeah Four mana is more like the norm, right? Yeah. The majority of walkers printed, there's more four mana walker than three mana walkers in, in modern overall. Right. Uh, totally. But three is sort of like, hey, that's the breaking point where you can have something that's maybe really, really broken and a format staple. Four is a little more run of the mill. So that's sort yeah, of yeah. like... Or, or a build around. Mana cost. The next bucket is the the different kind of templates that we talked about. And I think that we touched on three different templates, which is basically there's the um, utility walker, which is something that's a little bit in the, in the zone of um, Chandra. 
Yeah, Chandra, maybe Sarkin, Sarkin Fireblood, which we didn't talk about much, but is somebody who has a plan. That's sort of like the utility walker. Jace. There's the the two. Yeah, Jace is a utility walker that has like tools that he does that furthers the game through card advantage or something like that. But it's it it goes on over a long time. There's the Obnixilis model. That's the one that's kind of like you get to draw a card, you get to kill something, and you get to move on. And then finally, there's the game plan walkers that we talked about right which is sort of like um some somebody like a sahili rai that fits into a combo deck essentially and you need that as part of the engine of your combo i think you can kind of think of even though their activated abilities are very very powerful like karn or ugin sort of fit into that because their mana costs put them in that bucket in in some ways so does that make sense Koth is a game plan walker. Koth is one. Yeah, I'd exactly. Say, I mean, and like Nissa, Vital Force, but the game plan just has to be slow enough so she can't be main deck. Right. Yeah, that other Does that make sense? One in, in Devotion, whatever he's called. Garuk. Garuk, he's, yeah. He's the game plan. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. Dave, I, I like those buckets. Yeah. Great. So we're going to uh, analyze some new cards here right now. And let's talk about them in those, those kind of like um, different criteria, right? So let's look at Kaya first. So Kaya or is off her super. She is one white and a black. Uh, so that puts her at three CMC. So this is the zone where we want to start looking at them and say, okay, do they do enough to meet our expectations for a modern playable planeswalker? So her plus, plus one. So she starts at three starting loyalty, plus one. Exile up to two target cards from a single graveyard. You gain two life if at least one creature card was exiled this way. Her minus, minus one. Exile, target, non-land permanent with converted mana cost one or less. And then her ultimate, negative five, which he does get to in uh, on her third turn down. She can ultimate. So Kaya or is off her super deals damage to target player equal to the number of cards that player owns in exile. And you gain that much life. So not a game-winning ultimate, just kind of does something. So let's look at this. Let's look at this plus. Exile to two target cards from a single graveyard, and then the you gain life if a creature card was exiled. Seems narrow. Very. I mean, yeah. I mean, you can you can basically you can do that for one mana in modern or zero mana with like Tormod script. Yeah, um, it's just see. It seems more like a standard power level ability than a modern one, right? Like. That's going to get played in a standard deck for sure, but like in modern, I like, like we just mentioned, there's so many more cheaper and better ways to do that that you can do it, and there'll be games where it provides value and it's cool overall, but not terrific. And the minus is super narrow, like you know, maybe if there's just tons of death shadows running around. Yeah, although I think the thing that's really weird about this particular ability is that if this planeswalker was designed to be played in standard. There are so few CMC one or less cards in non-eternal formats. Yeah. You know, like like modern and legacy and stuff like that are gonna be rife with things that cost one mana or less because that's just the way that the game is played when you have a huge card pool. But yeah, it seems like it would be really hard to use that minus in standard, for example. Maybe it's the hint of things to come. I just don't think this thing sniffs modern play. I don't I don't know if this thing sniffs standard play. Well, I was trying to think about the how useful the minus one might be, and uh, I I think the best one that I came up with without looking at you know what Twitter or Reddit was saying was Chalice of the Void would be a pretty good get with this. 
if you're in black, white and you need to do that. Well, there's chalice, there's hanger back Walker and walking ballista and death shadow are kind of the main things that I thought about as well. And what decks exist in black, white in modern? Like, so there's tokens, not a deck. Yeah. But that doesn't want this. And there's Mardu. Yeah. Mardudes. Yeah. Mardudes doesn't want this. She gets her ultimate in the same amount of time Koth does in two turns. Yeah. Uh, but she doesn't quite, her plus one isn't quite as good as Koth's in that you're not dealing damage or untapping a land or anything super valuable to you. And her ultimate isn't, like, it's a one time thing. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't create something that's going to create lasting value for you. It's one and done. Right. So you have to have it be really hyped up or you, you know, get her up to that loyalty minus her and, okay, now they're at five, you're at 15. Can you win the game? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think it's real stinky. <laughs> P.U. I think that this is a weird... So if you think about the criteria that we laid out earlier, this is sort of like setting off alarm bells because it's three mana, right? Yeah. So there's high utility possibility because it's three three converted mana costs. When you evaluate the abilities, what Zach said is true. Like You see that it gets to the ultimate really fast, and so that's another thing that is kind of a check mark in the pro column. But then we actually sit down and look at this. This sort of looks like it's a weird game plan, Planeswalker, yeah. where it's kind of like exile, exile, and then hit you for for what your exile for what's in exile. That seems like you said early on, Shane, super narrow to me. I was pretty excited about this card when I glanced at it, but then I was like, I don't really know what this is going to be used for ultimately. Um, I kind of feel like this is a card that might end up in sideboards occasionally in a weird kind of way but yeah i don't think it sniffs modern unfortunately without doing too much speculation i will add that maybe it's an indicator of other cards that we don't know about yet that might become relevant like perhaps one cmc permanence will be pushed in the next set or this set or in the next year even she hits Aether Vial, too, for what it's worth. Not that that's very good on turn three, I guess, but... it's not. I mean, it's a good point. I, I think it's a totally valid point. It's just another target for it. Okay, so we're kind of saying Kaya, maybe not. Probably not. Kaya is skeptical. She has a lot to yep. prove. So we have, we have Dovin Grand Arbiter. One white, blue. Legendary Planeswalker Dovin. I don't know why I read that. We all know that. So his, so he he essentially he, he has the same thing. So it's Mr. Bond. He he starts at uh, three loyalty, is plus uh, until end of turn. Whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, put a loyalty counter on Dovin Grand Arbiter. That's real odd. Um, is negative one. Create a one one colorless Thopter artifact creature token with flying. You gain one life. I think that's only there to make him in the white category, the gain life. Uh, his negative seven, uh, dove in through time. Look at the top 10 cards of your library. Put three of them into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. I mean, so really, if we're talking modern playable, does he fit into blue-white control? Or does he make an entirely new blue-white strategy valid? Yeah, I think you're you're jumping ahead though. Like, let's try to take it a little bit like piece by piece before we try to find a home. Okay. For it, like, what's the individual card quality? It costs three. Okay, so that's a positive indicator for us. The abilities themselves seem kind of reasonable, right? The first one is, hey, do you want to put a whole bunch of loyalty on this? 
yeah, I guess you do if you want to try to draw cards. And then the minus one to just put a Thopter into play. If worse comes to worse and you use this three times to put Thopters into play, that's not great, but it is a thing that you can do with it yeah. um, ultimately to put three Thopters in play and it gain three life. And then, you know, dig through time is really, really good. Oh, yeah. I think you would absolutely play a three mana spell that was one, one blue and a white that said put three, one flying thopters into play and gain three life. You know what I mean? Like that, I would 100% play that spell. Would you? In standard? Oh, or oh, this is a modern okay. podcast. This, this is modern, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think that's an interesting point. Like in a game where you've cast Dovin and let's say you're playing against Jund and your opponent only has. Um, uh, goif out okay and you're just making thopters and they're attacking into them like is that it's not exactly three time walks but like it's buying you time just cast timely reinforcements it's probably just the better card (laughs) yeah although although the truth is i think if you if you're kind of like waiting to draw into a wrath or something like that that's possible I mean, he, like, I, I think what I want to talk about perhaps is what would make his plus one modern power level. Yeah. And I think, like, I think his plus one is just so weak. Like, maybe, maybe if it was like whenever you, a creature dealt combat damage to a player, you could draw a card, right? I, I, I think I, and I might be jumping ahead again because it's kind of an application, but it answers Shane's question. Uh, why, where and why his plus one is relevant, I think is, Thopter Sword. Ooh, what? Do you guys know that deck? The Thopter yeah. Sword combo where you just make a bunch of Thopters? Like, this seems great in that. <laughs> and I think that used to be a bigger part of the metagame in early modern, if I recall correctly. Oh, for sure. And, yeah. I don't know enough about that deck to confirm nor deny your, your thought there, Stan. It's just like a weird combo deck that makes a bunch of Thopters using Sword of the Meek and... Um, uh, Thopter Foundry is the name of the card. Yeah, thanks. And it, it kind of works like a prison deck too because it has ensnaring bridges. Um, like you know, yeah, other artifact based prison deck cards. Um, and it's in. It can make blue white mana. I think that's easy for it to do. In fact, so yeah, um, yeah maybe this is jumping ahead, but I I, I actually think Dovin Bond is interesting because of that deck in particular, or more to the point that it's what we might call a game plan Walker. Like he's kind of asking you to build around him and that three CMC, maybe he'll let you pay off by staying on the board for a few turns and getting all the cards you want for that exchange. Yeah. I mean, if you're a token deck, right. Or, or something that has small creatures of some, they got there somehow. Right. You you can plus him the turn that you play him, and he can probably immediately go. If you attack with three creatures, he's at uh, seven. Deals damage to a player. So you'd have to have a bunch of flyers or something like that. So like the only blue-white deck that is doing that is Spirits, and th- that Spirits doesn't want this card. Not a chance. Or do they? I don't no, think so. I don't think Aetherbile decks wants this card. No. Okay. But I do think that there's a chance that there's something out there that it's worth con- trying him out in. Just because casting Dig Through Time on turn 
four is a pretty sweet plan. Yeah, I was gonna say the only reason that this card seems appealing is that you get to legally cast a, a better like a better dig through time. Yes. On the topic of Thopter Sword, it appeared in twenty second place at GP Las Vegas this year. So there you go, yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just so you guys know too like thopter sword so this wasn't in early modern it was in the format that existed before modern extended ah uh, so it was a pre it was banned coming into the format because there was a deck that was really dominant in that extended format called thopter depths that played uh what's that is that called card called dark depths yeah that sounds merit lage so it played Dark Depths and Vampire Hex Mage and Thopter Foundry and Sword of the Meek. And it was kind of like a deck that had two different combos yeah, in it. And it was really, really, really good. And um, they just banned it from having a chance to exist in this format. And um, probably for the right, at least when it comes to Dark Depths anyway. But um, <clears throat> I think that, you know, Thopter is probably a pretty heads up spot to try to put something like this because ultimately that deck is a little bit of like a control combo deck and he seems like he could fit into something like that now i don't know if it's good or if it makes that deck playable not playable let's say tier whatever a higher tier than it is right now but Mm -hmm. for me when i read this card i was like this seems like a powerful card the mana cost is good the starting loyalty is pretty good for the mana cost and i could just see playing around with it for fun to see what happens so to wrap up, uh, should we do a round? And For the wind maybe, down, Stan. Yeah, the wind down portion of the dive down. Every episode we like to wind down because we're Just cool. take it easy at the end. Yeah. Yeah, let's revisit that uh, question that I believe Zach asked earlier about what we think is the best or what our favorite walker is in modern. Can I just get a quick consensus? Do you guys care if I think it's the best or my favorite? Because my favorite is is Jace. Yeah, like I, I just want to say Jace because I feel like he's a rewarding walker to play with and uh, he can be both narrow but also his ceiling is so incredibly high that I, I mean it's personal experience like feeling I'm getting better at modern because I'm getting better at playing Jace. But having that much power on a single body that, you know, also like kind of asks you to play a certain type of magic speaks to me. So he's both my favorite. And I think he does enough work that you can put him into the debate that he may be among the best of the format. Shane, you next. Yeah. I mean, this is tough because I think my, my favorite planeswalker is probably Ugin because he just wins the game so easily. Um, I think my, the one I, the one I like playing the most is Liliana of the veil because it's, it's a very tough to play her well. Um, she's not, she's not, she's, you know, she costs three, so she's not going to win the game by herself, but she can do so much. And I've definitely, I've definitely seen games when I, if I had played her a little bit differently, I would have won um, just with a little bit, you know, if I had plus her instead of minus her or something like that. Right. You know, both of those are great. I think Ugin's just a powerhouse and playing him on turn four is absurd. So I like that. Zach. That's me. I think that just from better be cough. It and losing it. No, it's not. I think it's Deferi. I love Koth. He is near and dear to my heart. He is my favorite. But every time I, f- I see Teferi in modern, I feel like the game has immediately become unwinnable for me. Unless I have like 
the the two bolts or whatever nonsense removal I need in my hand. If I can't kill him the turn he lands, I feel like it is just so hard for me to win from there because they're going to be getting so much value off of him. And like I attack him with a cough, they have yada, yada. It just feels like when he lands in that deck it is very hard to get past the value they are generating. How much of that opinion is just colored by the matchup between Scred and... It is 100% like- colored by it, because that's the deck I play. And every time I play against it on Magic Online, I get frustrated and I lose. <laughs> Feel you, bro. Dave, how about you, man? Uh, so, my favorite one is Elspeth's Sun's Champion. Ooh. Oh, yeah. I mean, not really, but it's a cool card, and we didn't talk about it, and it costs six. And it, it, it used to be played, but not anymore, right? It gets a little bit of play in white, blue, white control occasionally, sometimes in the sideboard. But that is a powerful card. Um, I think I have to go with. It's hard to give an answer other than the three you guys gave, and so I'm just gonna go with um, probably Liliana the Veil for the reasons that Shane said. I think it's there's a clear reason that it's the one that's worth a hundred bucks still, and it, right. it is what it is. Guys, I've enjoyed talking to you about Planeswalkers and Modern. Um, So, everyone, thanks for listening to Episode 3 of The Dive Down. Um, You can find us on Twitter at at The Dive Down. And our email is thedivedown at gmail.com. Shoot us an email. If you have a question, comment, feedback, we'd love to hear it. Follow us on Twitter. Trying to be active on there. So, again, we'll be back next week. And thanks for listening. (laughs) 